You're listening to Blink the Bruce Willard Podcast. This is our episode number 11, and 11 couldn't be any bigger. Yeah. And, and I'm with one of my best friends, Noah. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited for this episode. Uh, we were talking about it on our last podcast. If you haven't listened to that one, go check it out. we got two for you this week. or Yeah, this week, but also this month. So uh, definitely uh, excited about that. But go ahead and tell us a little bit more about what we're going to listen to today. We are at the second largest craft brewery in America, and also they led the they were pioneers to the craft beers coming back. So we're at Samuel Adams. I'm with Keith. Eli, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good. Good to see you guys. Yeah. We're excited to be here. Yeah, well, and thank you for setting this up. I've been absolutely, yeah, a little busy, but I'm glad we finally got to do this. It was good timing because this is actually the yeah. week of our fifth anniversary party here at the Tap Room, so it's a good opportunity to talk about that. Oh wow! How did you get into craft and get into Samuel Adams? Uh, good question, actually. I will kind of tell you my history there. <laughs> um, so I've been in the industry for about ten years or so now. Um, I started actually by getting homebrewing, which I guess is probably a lot of people's story, right? I basically got really into craft beer, um, started homebrewing, I uh, found that to be a lot of fun, and I think initially I was like, hey, I'm very interested in the brewery itself, um, which I think is probably a lot of people's story as well. Um, eventually, and I'll talk about it, I got a chance to try that side out, decided I kind of was better at front of house and other stuff, but it was a cool learning experience. So. Anyways, during the time that I was getting really into home brewing, uh, Sierra Nevada was actually running a consumer-facing beer camp, um, which was basically like a contest that you entered, and they picked uh, 20 winners total. And I ended up being one of a group of 10 that got selected and got to go up to Sierra Nevada and Chico and uh, like get the tour of the place. Uh, I got to spend two days with them, and then they ended up brewing the home brew that our group had decided on, um, and it was super cool. The beer ended up getting like a national distribution, which was awesome, and that kind of like jump started my career in the industry. Um, That's such a but, sick like way to get it was, started. It was awesome. Like <laughs> it was you couldn't. That's almost yeah. like a dream where like. You, you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, damn it, it's over. <laughs> it was, it was super cool. It was, it was kind of just happenstance too that when I was up there at that beer camp, uh, I ended up getting a call back uh, for an interview for this brewery in LA, um, that actually Boston Beer owns, uh, Angel City Brewery. Um, so I ended up getting hired uh, as a tour guide and worked my way up from there and six months was managing in front of house, which was pretty cool. Um, got to help out in the brewery too for three months, which was cool, but like I said, you know, after like three months of doing that, I was like, I don't really think I have the like scientific chops to do the, the brewing side, but I love the industry and wanted to be a part of it, you know, and so uh, there was opportunity in front of house and I kind of had a hospitality background going into that, so I jumped right into it, which was cool. Gotcha. Cool, cool. So talk to us about Simeon, Cincinnati. I know they got started in Boston, but how did they get into Cincinnati? Yeah, uh, good question, actually. Um, so the genesis of the taproom here uh, was actually came from coworker questions that came up over the years. So the production brewery across the street from the taproom, you can actually see it from where we're recording right now. It's a big mural on the side of the building, but. Uh, we have owned that since uh, 1996. Uh, we started brewing our beer there in 1997, but uh, Jim Cook is actually originally from Cincinnati. He grew up here, um, and his father and grandfather actually both worked across the street at various times at that brewery. And so I think, uh, you know, 
it was on Jim's radar at that point that you know this brewery was one that was available. Uh, Huda Paul was kind of struggling at that time, and he saw opportunity to basically buy the brewery, refurbish it, you know, and make it his own, and start brewing Boston Lager there. So we've been brewing here for a really, really long time, but we never really had anything that was like public facing, uh, drinker facing, and. It was a non-stop question from coworkers. We do, you know, annual meeting every year, and for like five years straight, every year it came up. Coworkers were like, "Why don't we have a tap room in Cincinnati? Why can't we, you know, have a place where we can come get uh, get and uh, get a beer like after a shift is over?" And I think it was asked enough times that, um, you know, our corporate team kind of looked at at that. The you know the coworkers wanted it, and also the growing industry here in Cincinnati, it, it seemed like it made sense to do. Um, property became available over here right across the street from the tap room, and, or sorry, right across the street from the brewery, and uh, yeah, we started this project probably about five and a half, six years ago. I'm uh, happy for to hear that, so you actually, instead of giving your workers a pizza party, you gave them a bar, hey, <laughs> yeah. go, go over and drink afterwards. Yeah, I, honestly, you know, it makes sense. It's like if you're a brewery worker, like packaging line guy, you probably want a place to be able to have a beer like after your shift, you know, and this was like our way to be able to do that and, you know, hopefully also like make some really fun R&D and innovation beers um, that we could test out, you know, with our coworkers and drinkers like. So it made sense for a lot of different reasons for us to open the tap room here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really nice place. The very first time I came down to Cincinnati, uh, I went to OTR and I saw Sam Adams and I was like, oh, I had no idea that it was in Cincinnati. Yeah. And so that was a really nice surprise. Um, and then on the way here, Blake told me that you make the most beer from Cincinnati. Is that correct? Uh, company-wide, we don't. But oh, it, it is a big part of the product mix that we make, for sure. We do brew like a ton of beer across okay. the street. But, um, our kind of three main production sites are Cincinnati, uh, we have a brewery in Pennsylvania as well, uh, it's right near Allentown, Pennsylvania, and then our little like nano brewery in uh, Jamaica Plain, Boston. So, so between, Boston's not the main one? Boston's not the main one, although Boston's kind of like the heart of it all, I guess I would say, like a lot of like Boston Lager Remastered, for example, like that's a good example of the beer that kind of was in like production and various stages for many, many years, and most of that work happened in Jamaica Plain, um, and then eventually scaled up to our production brewery. So a lot of times we're not going to start, you know, brewing a, a new beer on like, you know, a 200 barrel or 100 barrel system. We're going to like scale it up, you know, progressively. So um, our smaller tap rooms, like our, our one here, we're 2.5 barrels, we're tiny, but um, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but like a beer like Tractor Beer, like that beer will hopefully get a bigger life than just here, And but the seed kind of starts here and then, you know, eventually it gets scaled up to production size. Talk so. about Tractor, let's taste it. Yeah, 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 let's talk about Tractor Beer. Um, yeah, so first beer on the flight here. Um, so. Oh, it's uh, smooth. This beer is our uh, take on an American light lager. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of an interesting beer because it has a sustainability focus as well. Um, we actually uh, use basically drought resistant hops in it. Um, and there's a certain amount of unmalted uh, barley in it, which is kind of interesting. It's uh, it's kind of a new thing that we're trying out. Um, as you can imagine, like a lot of the steps in the brewing process uh, use a lot of energy, right? Like we're, we're a very water intensive, very energy intensive industry. Um, and a big piece of that is actually the malting process for barley, but 
uh, with tractor beer, we actually use part of the grain bill as unmalted barley. So it's taking the barley right after it's harvest, um, and then actually uh, using an enzyme to extract the sugar from it. So normally there would be a bunch of steps in that process, but um, we kind of wanted to experiment with using this enzyme, and we've found it to be successful so far. We've probably done four or five beers out of the tap room so far with like using the enzyme to extract the sugar and not going through the whole malting process that would normally happen. So this beer was kind of our first foray into that. Um, we're thinking it will get a bigger life too. We're actually, we're uh, in this upcoming year going to be launching in select markets in American light lager. And I'm not sure the final recipe will settle on if it will be tractor beer or not, but it will definitely be from this seed of tractor beer, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's you, awesome. You definitely see in the industry a bigger push for like, I mean, Ryan Geist just came out there. For sure. Warp Wayne just up in Dayton just did one. So yeah. You see a bigger push. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Is that because the market's open now? It's like, hey, we can go get one since the Bud Light issue? Uh, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I've been kind of like on my end fascinated by like the consumer that's drinking like a light craft beer. Um, you know, like if you look at over the years, things that Jim Cook has said, he's, he's placed a lot of lines in the sand, right? Of we'll never do this. And then eventually he changes his mind and we do it. A good example was cider. We weren't going to do cider. And, Another good example, he said, like, this is probably back in the 90s, I don't know the exact timing, but he was like, we'll never do a light beer. But then there was enough demand for it that we eventually rolled out Sam Adams Light. Um, yeah, the market sure. always is in control of these yeah, things. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And it, it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly what is driving the light beer piece. I mean, I, I would say if I, my gut is that when you've seen seltzers and other, what we call like the beyond beer category, as I've seen that flourish, I think that beer, honestly, is kind of like not checking all the same boxes for certain drinkers, basically. Like, they're looking for something that kind of checks more of those boxes. And so I think light lagers probably more in that direction, um, but still a beer, if, if that makes sense. Because I've noticed that I've gone into light lagers more than I ever thought I would, because I, 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 I was the first one when I got into craft. I would never drink a light lager. Yeah. <laughs> but... But some of them I've had, and I mean, they're actually really good, and I know they're like one of the hardest ones to brew because you yeah. can't hide from it. That's true. That definitely is true, and I, I think there's also the piece too that if you're looking at, like sessionability, like in thinking about drinking occasions, like you know, sports, for example, like I mean, a lot of people are usually drinking for many hours during the day, yeah. and it's really hard to do that with like a. 6.5% IPA. <laughs> I mean, you can do it, but you won't make it through. <laughs> right. Exactly. Going back to the sustainability side of it, first of all, I'm a huge fan of that. I like the planet and I want to be here as long as I can be. But uh, I recently read an article that uh, hops are changing the way they taste due to uh, the world warming up. Yeah. Is I, that Have you noticed that yourself? Or is that something that you guys are more worried about down the line? Or... That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, honestly. I, I well, I'm not sure headline. anyone does. Yeah. That's sort of the that's sort of the <laughs> issue. <laughs> I saw that headline. I, I did not read the article, but I I will say I know that with the the hop industry, there's a real movement towards constantly expanding. Right? It's like there's all these new hop varieties coming out, and you know we're lucky. Boston beer has been around. It's going to be 40 years this upcoming year. So like we have a lot of those long-term relationships with hop vendors. Um, and 
I think you're seeing a push towards drought-resistant hops and hops that can withstand some of the climate issues that we're seeing, honestly. I think that's probably going to be the biggest push is like, hey, we want hops that like if we have extreme heat or extreme cold or any of that, that they still survive and we still have a harvest. Um, yeah, and, and so much like beer when it first began in ancient times, right? I mean, that taste, if we were to have it today, we'd be like, this is the grossest thing in the world. So maybe, (laughs) maybe we just need to get used to the new taste and then it'll be okay. Sort of thing. Not, I mean, I I don't sort of making this up as I go, but I I will say too, not that I'm like by any means expert on this, but if you look at some of the history of hops in the U S there actually used to be a huge population of hop farms on the East coast of the U S and as you guys probably know, but like at this point, almost all of them are on the West coast, right? like Yakima Valley, Mm -hmm. Idaho, that whole area. Um, And part of the reason that happened was that there was uh, an insect that, I I don't remember what it was, but an insect that killed almost the entirety of the hop harvest back then. And so the industry kind of had to evolve and, you know, move west where the insect wasn't. So I I think the industry's been there before, and I think they'll continue to evolve. Gotcha, gotcha. So do a lot of your hops come from here, or where do semi-animals get most of your hops out? Because I'm assuming you go through a lot of it. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I don't know where we get all of our hops from. I can tell you on the Samuel Adams side of the the business specifically, um, we actually have a really good relationship with some of the like old school German hop growers and Jim um, for like 20 plus years at this point goes to the hop harvest in Germany every year and buys from the same vendor. That's actually where that uh, that shield sign behind us is from. It's from that family-owned hop farm. Um, so at least when it comes to Boston Lager and most of our seasonals on the Sam side, we're getting that directly from that German hop farm. Um, for like newer beers, they probably are not using noble hops or not using German hops. We definitely source them from other vendors, but I don't know the specifics and necessarily where we get all of this from other than I know we have long-term relationships there. All right, so let's go into our next beer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the next beer here is uh, it's getting Winter chilly. <laughs> um, so we just actually tapped this uh, in the last week or so. And uh, it's our winter seasonal, um, along with Holiday White Ale. Winter Lager is kind of the main one, and Holiday White's what we call the overlay. It's kind of like the second seasonal. But um, I put this on here because seasonal beer is honestly like the biggest driver of our business at, at this point. Um, if you look at like nationally, Sam Adams, the seasonal is the bulk of what we do um, at this point, which is kind of interesting. Um, well, you're also like, you know, Oktoberfest, you guys do the huge yeah. celebration downtown. So I'm sure yeah. that that helps a lot too. For in sure. Terms yeah. Of seasonal stuff. Yeah, we've yeah. been doing that for a long time. And uh, Oktoberfest, the beer has been around for quite a long time. And I mean, it's definitely our main like seasonal driver for sure. It's only around a short window, it's around two months, and then it's, it's in and out. Basically. Right, right. So what's in this one then? Um, Winter Lager actually is a uh, wheat bock, um, and then it has like kind of a bouquet of holiday spices to it. So there's some cinnamon, some nutmeg in there. Um, it's definitely meant to be like easy drinking, but a bit more, uh, a bit more body, I would say, than like summer ale or cold snap or other seasonals that we do basically. Um, but yeah, seasonal is like in the tap room, out in the market. It's you know one of our primary drivers. It's it's what drinkers like, um, and honestly, it's kind of what uh, what we started with too on the Sam Adams side, like pretty early on, like. 
uh, mid-80s company started in 1984, but Jim Cook had the idea of doing like a rotator seasonal, basically, and uh, and kicked that off. And obviously, it's kind of hard to manage in those early days, but we have found as time has gone on that it really only increases in popularity over time. <laughs> like you probably have seen, but we do like in market uh, like whatever season it is like right now the winter variety pack but we normally have a variety pack that has four different uh, seasonal beers in it so that's definitely a main driver for us for sure gotcha so so what was your core beers or are they still very much around the day or has they changed from here and there um so uh our core beer initially was boston lager um it was uh and it does actually have kind of interest in cincinnati tie but uh, Jim Cook, when he had the idea to start Boston Beer Company and start Samuel Adams, uh, he went to his dad and told him that he was thinking of getting into the brewery business. And his dad was like, "You're crazy! Like, the, you know, I got out of it for a reason." His dad actually got into uh, chemical manufacturing after he left the brewery business. But Jim's idea was that he wanted to compete and take on the imports. It, it wasn't macro breweries, right, that he was taking on. It wasn't the Budweiser's at that time. It was that he wanted to take on, you know, the, the Heineken's, the, the beers like that, that basically, in his opinion at that time, it was like, hey, the fact that they have to be imported and brought to the U.S., like, already we have an advantage if we use, you know, the highest quality ingredients. If we're not importing it, you know, we're brewing it here, it's going to be fresher. Um, and so that was kind of his plan of attack, um, business-wise. And he started that with Boston Lager. So uh, Boston Lager was actually, his dad uh, gave him the recipe for it. It was from the family attic here in Cincinnati, which is kind of cool. Um, Jim ended up brewing it on a stovetop initially. Um, and then within a year, had started producing it and you can actually see on the mural behind here but the original label of the original Boston Lager that we had those were like the original sample bottles that he gave out in bars in Boston which is kind of cool um, so Boston Lager was a beer that started it all um, we moved to seasonals in the years after that uh, some seasonals aren't around anymore double Bach was one of them um, we tried out a few different things before kind of landing on our current seasonal uh, portfolio but um, Sam Adams has had a ton of beers over the years. Uh, if you look behind me, there's actually selling some uh, what's called throwback pack right now. They're like some classic uh, Sam Adams beers, like Noble Pills, that were really popular for a while, went away because um, we kind of moved in a different direction. But you'll find at the tap room here, and in general, we occasionally bring back those like old favorites um, gotcha. that people have a lot of nostalgia around and like fond memories of. So, old Fezziwig's another good one there. Cool. And that must have been brave for him because, you know, back in 1986, there wasn't really much around. I yeah. know in the West Coast, it started taking off. Yeah. But on the East Coast, it wasn't really there yet. It, yeah, it, it definitely was a risk. It, it was for sure a huge risk. Um, but I think he felt like he had a really solid business plan and, you know, had kind of an idea how to go about it, um, which was cool. And um, yeah, I I think also it was just the focus on quality of the beer, right? Like he he wanted to make sure he was brewing the best possible thing he could. And uh, in less than a year after that, actually at Great American Beer Fest, uh, Boston Lager won Best Beer in America that year, which was like kind of, a bunch of things kind of happened in that first year of them being in business. But we went pretty quickly from like just you know Massachusetts and Boston to almost all of America. I mean, within a couple of years, we were there, which was was cool. And, 
to your point, there just was not much else. I think great, I'm not sure Great Lakes just went off or not, but no. yeah, I'm not sure the timing of when they opened. Yeah. But. but I also did a little research. So you're, I heard you're, so you're a Cicerone. So tell yeah. us about that. Sure. What? <laughs> yeah. Why? How do you become one of those? Um, it's a really interesting process, actually. Uh, the uh, the suggested kind of like study lead time for it is normally about 12 weeks or so, and um, the the test uh, for background for anybody that doesn't really know about it, it's a it's a written test, um, but then there's uh, probably like three or four different tasting portions, and then there's a portion too that is a videotaped portion where at least when I took the test, they had you take apart a draft handle and put it all back together and name all the pieces in it, <laughs> which. It's actually kind of useful to, to learn that stuff because um, behind the bar you're troubleshooting draft stuff a lot. Um, but yeah, honestly, the biggest piece of it is studying a lot of the history of all the different styles of beer. Uh, I mean, at this point, there's like, I don't even know how many styles of beer, but if you look at BJCP guidelines, there's probably 120 or more styles listed, which is kind of crazy. And I'm sure you guys have seen, but like in America, we tend to blur the lines a lot between like what styles are basically. Like cold so, IPAs. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's a great, a great example for sure. Or how many different pilsners they make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the other piece of the test is um, you have to taste uh, off uh, off flavors basically. So uh, it's been a while since I've taken the test, but it's like eight different beers I think, and you have to identify which four or five of those are spiked and have off flavors in them. Um, which that's really useful from a training standpoint. Um, it's like you'll find a lot that um, like. It's, it's something you always are tasting for, right? It's always tasting the beer to make sure there's nothing like, not oxidation, not nothing like that. So. All right, all right let's go into our next one. Yeah. Uh, so I actually threw a little curveball on, on here. Um, this next one is just the haze, which is actually our non-alk beer. Oh, nice. Um, okay. I thought it would be fun to throw on here, um, talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, we actually just started uh, venturing into non-alk. Um, yeah, I think it's about two years or so um, for Sam Adams that we've started doing non-alk. And at this point, we only have two non-alk beers, uh, just the Haze, uh, which is this one, and then Gold Rush, which is like a gold nail. This feels like another thing that Jim Cook would have said we would never do at some point, he but did. the market force. He did say that. He yeah. did say that many, many years. And it's very funny. I like to tell this story. But when we were doing trial runs of this beer, he actually... Uh, they had him taste this next to actual beer that has alk in it, and he was like, you guys are tricking me. This one has, <laughs> this one's probably like 8% ABV. And they're like, no, it's not. It's actually not alk, which is kind of cool. But um, but no, he, uh, like I was saying, Jim cares very, very much about quality, and if we did a non-alk beer, he wanted us to do it the right way. So a lot of research, a lot of R&D went into this beer um, to, to get there. Um, and this actually, this won a gold medal at GABF last year for the non-alk category, which is kind of cool. So we so like- had some, and some of this, this one tastes so much better than some of the others, because it's like some of them are just missing stuff. Yeah. I am not talking about the alcohol part, but I'm just, yeah. there is something <laughs> like not there. Yeah. It's honestly, it's really, really, really hard to do well, and it's, it's funny, it's almost counterintuitive, but it's like, you, you would almost expect 
places charge less for non-alc beer, right? Because there's like there's no alcohol in it, right? But it's actually more work to create non-alc beer. It's just kind of like a counterintuitive piece of non-alc is that like it kind of is normally the normal brewing process, and then some process to remove the alcohol after that, um, which is kind of interesting. So, so let's just talk a little bit because we've never actually spoken about non-alcoholic beer on this podcast. Yeah. Um, there is definitely a rise in, and sure. you know. Truthfully, it's a good thing, in my opinion. Yeah. Maybe not not for brewers, but I mean, yeah. if you're able to adjust, then that's great with non-alcoholic beer. But I mean, I think that this is definitely a necessary step that every every brewery, whether you're a Bud Light or Budweiser, and um, or a craft brewery, you've yeah. got to sort of step into, mostly because you know you can't force people to drink your product. Right. Unless you have an alternative, right? Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think there's a lot of applications for it that I hadn't really considered when we first released it. Um, you know, when when it first came out, I kind of was thinking like, this is probably targeted for somebody that's sober at this point, or you know, is cut out drinking for a certain amount of time, basically. And, I think there's actually application for it for somebody that is currently drinking, um, but looking for more of like a pacer beer. Yeah, um, for sure. And the the first like kind of thing that somebody kind of turned me on to about it was like, it's kind of good if you know if you're having to drive home for the night and you're out at a place and you have two beers and you're like, that's my limit for the night. But I still want to be social, and I still want to have a drink in my hand, and it functions great for that. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think yeah. many people know this. Yeah. Of, well, especially because the cans are so identi- are I- yeah. identical, typically to sure. like you know. I think at one point I was I was with a buddy, and I didn't even realize halfway until the evening was over that he was drinking the Heineken version of the yeah. of the alcohol free one, and you know all that. I think the only difference was that there was like a double zero yeah. on the on the bottle, but it's, you have to look really closely. So it's I mean, one of the biggest growing categories in craft right yeah. now is non-alc actually, which is kind of interesting. And I I think it makes sense if you look at um, like the demographics of younger drinkers, like talking people twenty five to thirty five probably, but uh, in general that generation is consuming a lot less Mm -hmm. and I think that this type of product is like more in line with lifestyle choices and stuff that they're making which is kind of cool you know that we're evolving that way right yeah totally totally so I noticed in 2019 you and you and Dogfish had merged. What has that yeah. been process been like and stuff like that? Have they sure. brought some new stuff for you guys you haven't thought of or? Yeah, that's a really good question actually. I didn't expect that to come up necessarily, but well, we're been, really good at this whole thing. <laughs> I'm a craft nerd. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do a lot of research in craft. You can ask him. I, it, this is all pretty much I do outside my other job. Um, this is more fun now. Cool. Uh, it's been a really cool process, honestly. Uh, I say that as somebody who has been a big fan of Dogfish, like pre us merging, um, and who had met Sam Calgioni a couple times previous before that. Um, and it was kind of interesting when we were looking at that possibility of our companies merging. I think the real question was because it was something we had like considered in the past, but we never really found the right partner to do that with. Um, and I think a big driver for that was we wanted company cultures that really like matched, um, and we felt like a lot of camaraderie with you know coworkers we were going to be new coworkers with basically. And Dogfish was definitely the brewery that we felt that with the most. Um, I think the other aspect of that too, when they were looking at that possibility, was um, 
you know, two beer companies merging. Obviously, Boston Beer makes more than just beer. We make a plethora of products at this point, but on the beer side specifically, we wanted a partner that our portfolios almost didn't compete with each other. And if you think Dogfish, like, in my mind, it's IPAs, it's really kind of pushing the envelope beers, you know, in like the last 20 years or so. And like, I love 60 minute and 90 minute. Yeah. Those are very good IPAs. And we, we felt like basically they kind of were uh, tackling a side of beer that Sam Adams really wasn't um, and could continue to kind of drive forward on that path. Um, the other big thing I was saying on the dogfish side, which has been really interesting, is that uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but dogfish has a spirits line. Um, no. and I don't think I knew that. Yeah, it's it's super cool. They do uh, a couple of different things. They do uh, ready to drink co- uh, canned cocktails, mm. uh, which have like shot up in popularity. I'm sure you guys have seen. If you go into Kroger, there's like probably 20 different canned cocktail varieties out now. Um, but Dogfish uh, does those, and they're, they're really great, honestly. They taste awesome. And then they have uh, more traditional spirits. So they have like a vodka, a gin, a whiskey. Um, and that's something that, frankly, the Sam Adams stuff, we've never dabbled in. We've never dabbled in uh, liquor and, you know, like RTDs or any of that. Um, so I think the fact that, like, they've been able to kind of push an envelope there, I think it's it's been great, honestly, for all of us. And um, it's been cool, honestly, too, just speaking on a personal level for a second, but, like, so many of our, our dogfish co-workers are, like, people I love working with. <laughs> um, so it's, like, it's been a really good match, I think. You know, overall. but I like... People will hate on this when you guys do that stuff, but I'd rather see breweries merge with each other than get gobbled up by Anheuser-Busch and get shut down because they yeah. went in on it just like Platform. I mean, Platform had such good beers, and it's just yeah. I like seeing breweries be able to survive, even though, like with Bells, I'm happy they merged yeah. who they did right? because at least they still survived. I, I think the thing, too, with this merger that was cool is that uh, I think – our, uh, I think our upper leadership within Boston Beer was really cognizant of wanting to make it like a true collaboration, not like, hey, we take over and start brewing your beers. We didn't want it to be that type of thing. And the biggest thing I would point to is that uh, Sam Calagione and his wife Mariah are both part of our board of directors now, um, which is awesome. Like, they're the largest shareholders in the company, you know, outside of like other institutional holders. And so I think they have a real vested interest in like making sure that like their vision is still you know getting executed and that they're also teaching us stuff too frankly like i think we've learned a lot from the dogfish side that we we probably wouldn't have if the merger didn't happen which is kind of cool and with the merger some people consider you because you know ryan guys and you guys get this stigma you get too big you're no longer craft how do you like fight those people that are saying i mean I mean, when you go to Ryan Guys or you guys, yeah. when you go into the tap room, you see some beers you never see, and it's some crafter and yeah. I'm sorry, some of these other small ones that these beers actually taste. No, it's. I think that's a difficult uh, thing actually because, and it's a really good question because uh, if you look over the years, the Brewers Association has like adjusted over the years what their definition of craft is and I think if you look at especially the last five years in the industry like it's so blurred those lines like I, I've been in the industry 10 years and 
there are days I find out a brewery is, is owned by AB that I had no awareness of that at all. Like, it's been hard to keep up with all those things happening. Um, and I think the definition of craft has had trouble keeping up with, like, where the beer industry is at. Like, things have just changed so quick. Like, they, I don't think we can adjust quick enough to that. But to me, I think the most important thing is, like, caring for quality. Like, the, hey, like, at the end of the day, like, is your brewery actually focused on, like, quality ingredients? Like, putting your best foot forward there, honestly. And, like, I feel like we are. I feel like that's, like, something that I know at the end of the day, no matter what we release to the market, that Jim Cook has personally tasted it. He personally has stamped it on the Sam Adams side. And that he truly believes, like, that is the best thing we could come up with at the time, which I think is pretty cool. Like, I don't... I think there's a lot of owners like when they've sold you know they're not that invested or in the process anymore so sure it's so easy to just own something and and sort of blindly let let whatever take course so yeah yeah, i'm with you it it is cool like uh on on jim's side i truly think that he's one of the most passionate people i've ever met about beer like i mean he's in his early 70s at this point but still is like his fingers constantly on the pulse still of like what is happening in the craft industry and what he thinks is a good fit for Sam Adams and what isn't honestly like there's times like we've considered like hey let's brew the style and it, you know just doesn't make sense for us as a brand it's not where our heads at at the time or anything you know? so no sours coming for Sammy Adams huh? <laughs> we've it's funny we've done sours over the years oh, we okay. just we never quite got to where we wanted to with them so we did gotcha. like a cosmic mother funk series um, and it's something We've dabbled over the years, but, gotcha. um, you know, to give a shout out to neighbors and friends of ours, honestly, like for fans of Sours, like Urban Artifact is killing that. Like, yeah, for sure. And I just saw they do it so well. Like a whole row of new tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, they're, they're not slowing down at all. That's you- a, oh, I was just going to say, that's the thing is like sour beers require so much like dedicated equipment and all that yeah. for it. And I think for us, we just never were able to get you know exactly where we want it with that. right and right. kind of the market change a little bit and stuff too but yeah well you have this bottle of, of yeah. new beer here why don't you tell us a little bit about this one yeah i wanted to mention this beer because actually this gets released friday it's not quite done we still got to wax the bottles but uh worth talking about so this beer is double barrel topias um it's uh a imperial stout that was aged in utopia's barrels um, mm. The Utopia is very high octane. It is, yeah. It's normally about 28% ABV, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and uh, the Utopia's barrels, uh, one cool thing that we're able to do here is get those after the Utopia's uh, gets brewed in those. And then uh, Chris, our head brewer, actually uh, aged basically the first round in Utopia's uh, barrels and then transferred it over to brown sugar bourbon barrels. Mm. Um, so it's aged in two different barrels. Wow. So uh, it's our first time doing something like this. Um, and So what's the ABV on this compared to? Uh, 13.3. Okay, so, so, it's, so it's, it's still a big hitter for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just... You know, not quite the Utopias, but Utopias, you know, you're going to do a 1.5 ounce pour as a suggested serving size. So. Oh, you don't want to make it bigger? <laughs> well, you might want to, but they'll make you pay for it. <laughs> so is this what this is? Uh, no, no. Actually, uh, I do not have this on here, unfortunately, because I, I don't have a bottle ready to go, but I can probably send you guys away with one, though. But the last one I have on here is another barrel-aged beer that we did uh, called Blackbeard's Vacation 2, Extended Vacation. 
Um, oh, so I like that a lot. This is actually a rum barrel aged beer. Um, yeah, you can taste the rum yeah. very, very well. Yeah, it's awesome. The first iteration of this beer we did, it was the first time we had ever aged anything in rum barrels. Um, and it ended up winning a medal at the US Beer Open, which was super cool for the rum barrel age category. Uh, won a silver last year. So we decided to do kind of like a slight tweak on it this year. It was different rum barrels that we used, um, slightly different variant of rum barrel. But uh, yeah, this is one, you know, this is more of a summertime beer, but wanted to kind of show you guys some of the barrel age stuff that we did. But you could definitely drink this in the winter. Oh, yeah, for it's sure. Not- <laughs> you can drink anything in the winter if you try hard enough, Blake. You could. You definitely could. Okay. One question my buddy Eric would kill me if I didn't ask about this. Sure. FC Cincinnati just moved in next to you. Yeah. Um, what has that been like? And you can see around us there is change coming in this area. Yeah. Has How, how has that been like? It, it's been awesome, honestly. Um, it's, uh, as you can imagine, like match days are our busiest days here at the Tap Room. Um, we uh, are a sponsor of the team, uh, which is kind of cool. So we do have our beer over at the stadium. Uh, Cincinnati Lager that's actually uh, on tap right now. Um, that's the exclusive beer that we do just at the tap room and just at the stadium. Is that like the 513 you guys had or is it uh, completely different? It's a little bit different. The 513 is more malty, more of like an amber, uh, like lager. Uh, Cincinnati Lager is a dry hopped lager. So okay. kind of has like nice hop aroma, nice hop finish to it. Um, Chris's idea when he came up with Cincinnati Lager originally was he wanted to brew a beer that had basically German malt and kind of like almost had like a German Pilsner like or German Lager type beast but then American hops and gets dry hopped with American hops. So kind of a German-American hybrid <laughs> beer if that makes sense and it was kind of a nice tribute to Cincinnati given like our German beer history here um, but also like how many American breweries we have here at this point. So. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a nod to that. Um, but that's available in cans and draft at the stadium too, which is cool. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome partnership, and especially because you know they're so they're kicking ass this year. Yeah. It's like the best time ever. I'm sure they're selling out often. We do, we do, and honestly, like most of us that work here behind the bar are huge fans of the team. Um, we've gotten to do like a couple of meet the player events here, which is really cool. We uh, last year had Roman Celentano, the goalkeeper, out. The Matt Miesga, uh defender out, which is super cool. So, Not so be honest, how many beer? Or what's what's Lucho Acosta's favorite beer? <laughs> we don't know actually. We've never been able to get him out. Ah, uh, we'll work on it. Cool. We'll work yeah, on I'm it. I'm not a huge fan. Of God. I'm not happy with him right now. He's in yeah. a little problem. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what happened, but let's not talk about that because <laughs> we don't know. But yeah, we're huge fans of FC, um, and honestly, like it's it's been a huge boon for business, and we love supporting them. Um, um, a couple years ago, we were uh, home base for Die Innenstadt, uh, one of the supporters groups, which was like super cool when we hosted them. Um, but we still see a lot of those guys a lot. They come in, you know, a lot of weeks and have a beer in here. So it's been a great like community spirit type thing, which has been cool. Gotcha. So you, you said you wanted to talk about your head brewer if you wanted to. Yeah, I don't yeah, really I know the good, the best transition because yeah. I, I don't know him. I would be remiss if I didn't give him a plug. Uh, Chris Sigmund is our head brewer here at the tap room. Um, he uh, He's a Cincy native, which is cool. Um, and he's worked in the brewing industry for a long time, actually. He, uh, similar to my story, kind of, but he went to school for graphic design. <laughs> he started as a graphic designer. A classic, a classic yeah. lead in to being right. a brewer. It is sister bought him a homebrew kit for Christmas one year and from there 
uh, he started brewing. He got really, really into like the local home brew clubs. He actually uh, is still a member of the Cincinnati Malt Infusers, who are like a local home brew club here in Cincinnati. Um, and we've done a lot of work with them. Actually, they uh, they we do like a few contests with them a year, and like the winner gets to brew in our system here, which is cool. But anyways, back to Chris for a second. Uh, Chris was head brewer at Mount Carmel Brewing uh, many years ago, and then from there went to 50 West Brewing, was head brewer at 50 West before he joined our team. So a lot of the beers that you see in the market, the 50 West beers, those are Chris's beers, like his little beers, like Coast to Coast IPA and Doom Petal. Uh, those were recipes of Chris's, which are cool. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Coast to Coast one. Yeah. So yeah, and then he joined uh, you know, Sam Adams after that. and. Um, he's great. I think he's a super talented brewer. I think we're super lucky to have him. Like, he's just great, and he he has his finger on the pulse in the industry and really gets like where stuff's headed. You know. And, yeah. Well, we'll have to come back and meet him yeah. sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely we'd love to have you interview him sometime. So, what's next for Samuel Adams? Like, what's what's your goal here? I know your anniversary is just coming up. Maybe yeah. Happy fifth next. year. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it. Um, good question. Uh, I think for us, uh, I'll answer this in two parts. One, for the taproom itself. Uh, I think for the taproom itself, um, you know, the anniversary party is a big moment. We're super excited. We're one of the, like, the only sites that can serve utopias, and we really love the chance to highlight that beer. Um, and I think for the taproom long term, we really just want to keep leaning into investing in the community. Um, we have found that, like, you know, kind of the the home brew roots of the company with Jim like cooking on the stovetop. Honestly, like I was just mentioning the Cincinnati Ball Infusers, but like the more of those connections we make in the community and like more we can kind of like help out there, uh, I think is is great and just really feeds into like our message as a company. And then long term for Sam Adams, I'd say that's probably above my pay grade, honestly. Um, I will say, you know, on the beer end of things, uh, we are going to dabble in American Light Lager this upcoming year. Um, Beyond that, I don't know. I, if I had to guess, I would say we're probably going to explore non-elk more. I, I know that's a big project of ours and something we really want to like continue to push an envelope there. So. I have a quick question, and this is more personal, so I'm sorry to put it on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. Would you be able to do, like if someone were to call you and be like, I'm really interested in your non-alcoholic beer, could you do? Like a small like keg? Or? That's it, yes. Not from the tap room. So okay. we actually don't make any of the non-alc stuff here in the tap room or or either of our two uh, Boston sites, although we did kind of demo it at JP, but the reason for it is that uh, the equipment that we need to pull the alcohol out is kind of like larger production scale. So Understood. It is installed across the street at the production brewery. We have a small version of it in Boston, and then in Pennsylvania is kind of where that lives, so we almost have to do a bigger batch if it's non-alc, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. So we definitely plan on doing more demoing, but our site, we don't have anything to de-alkalize anything sure. at our particular tap room. Understood, so, understood. But I would love if we could. It'd be cool. I, I will note this. Uh, Chris has done a lot of experiments in very low ABV beers. So we've done multiple, probably five or six at this point, beers that are like 3% or sub 3%, honestly. And I was a little skeptical at that time. I was like, I, you know, this is three years ago and I didn't feel like the market had reached a place yet. But over time we have found that those have increased in popularity. So I do continue 
you know, seeing us do more like low elk. Gotcha. Cool. Well, we thank you so much. This has been a dream this Absolutely. whole year. Noah, Eric, it's been a blessing. I can't. I'm so happy you came on. And, cool. And I hope to do this again sometime. Awesome. Too. Yeah, we'd love to have you guys out to interview Chris at some point. Yes. Yeah. Sounds great. He's much more technical know-how than I am. But. No, but you're a great storyteller. Yeah. Cool. This has been another episode of Blake the Brewery Explorer podcast hosted by Blake Longfellow, Noah Jones, and Eric Bergeser. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review and share it with your drinking buddies. Our podcast is also on social media. Find us at Blake the Brewery Explorer on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast is produced by Noah Jones of Nojo Creative. Cheers.